everybody. Thanks for joining. I really appreciate it. So this podcast, I'm interviewing Keith Valentine. Keith is currently the CEO of C-Spine and uh, has spent his, basically almost his entire career in startups in Spine. And uh, he took Nuvasiv from basically zero to a billion dollars. And I worked with Keith back at the old sophomore Danic days. We reminisce a little bit about those days. And for those of you who are in the spinal implant business, uh, you're going to enjoy this podcast because we talk about how Ron Pickard, the president and CEO of Sophomore Danic at the time, took on uh, class action lawyers trying to litigate against the use of pedicle screws. And uh, if it wasn't for a guy like Ron, there probably wouldn't be a spinal implant industry like there is today. So uh, a little history lesson we'll be going through and then, you know, just sharing his thoughts on the future of the industry. So without further ado, let's get at it. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Medical Sales Nation. Glad you can join us. Um, hope you're staying healthy, happy, safe, and at least in, trying to enjoy your time out there. So um, I'm really excited to have uh, our, this next guest on the Medical Sales Nation. Uh, it's Keith Valentine, president and CEO of C-Spine. Now, I've known Keith for 20-some-odd years, um, longer than that, probably 27 years, um, as we both were at a company called Danic, sophomore Danic in the days, now Medtronic Spine. And then Keith has gone on to build um, startups in the spine business. And really excited to have you here, Keith. Thanks for joining. Yeah, thanks for thanks for having me. Excited to, to catch up. Yeah. So, well, Keith, why don't we do this? Why don't we just uh, provide a little information to the audience about where you started and um, what you've done and where you're at now, just to give a little context to, to who you are. Sure. So, you know, I- interesting how I got started in, in med device. I, uh, I, I thought as I was going through, through college, I actually did a, a dual program in business and pre-med and, and had aspirations to eventually get into medicine. And it really was the, the summer between college and, and actually thinking about, am I, am I very serious about continuing on to med school that I got exposed to international travel? And that was the opportunity that presented itself. It was with Stryker in an international marketing position. And that, that's kind of how I, I caught the bug, so to speak, and got involved with Stryker. And it really was Stryker as a fundamental um, start. And it, it's such a strong company and does such a great job in getting people quickly aboard and giving them quite a lot of responsibility and autonomy to, to, to do whatever their, their, their specialty is. And, and it was actually an executive from Stryker that recruited me to, uh, at the time, Danic, that, that later became sophomore Danic. And I'd, I'd love to tell you that I, I researched a, a bunch of companies and, and you know, figured out that Spine was going to be one of the biggest growers in, in orthopedics over the next 30 years. I, I didn't. I, I went with, at the time, leadership, and I went with someone I trusted. And as it turned out, that's how my career started in, in medical device spine in orthopedics and neurosurgery and neurosurgical spine. And from there, 
went to California and um, started up or helped start up with, with a gentleman named Alex Lukianoff and Pat Miles, um, a company called Nuvasive and was at Nuvasive for 15 years. And we took it from no sales to almost a billion in sales before I left. And now over the past five years, I, I've been with another smaller spine company called C-Spine. And C-Spine is unique in the sense that half of our business is orthobiologics, half of it is spinal implants. But the interesting part is on the orthobiologic side, we actually manufacture the orthobiologics ourselves in Southern California and Irvine. So our offices are in Carlsbad, California, which is Northern San Diego County. And our manufacturing facility is in Irvine. So just about 45 miles further North. So if you look at it, I, I I've been in med device since 1990, um, or been in spine, I should say, uh, for almost 30 years. And, um, you know, it's, as, as I said, when we started, it was, you know, barely anything, the market size. I never would have imagined the, the opportunity would grow to what it is today. Yeah, it, it really is remarkable. Um, now, you went to Western Michigan. Is that how you got connected with Stryker by being there? It is. You know, I, I, um, I started off my college at University of Michigan, transferred to Western Michigan, largely because of the double major I wanted to, to pursue. And um, it was an opportunity because Kalamazoo is the home of Stryker. Right. And, but more importantly, it was a relationship that was established when I went back to Kalamazoo with a gentleman named Tyler Lipschultz, who has been in also orthopedics for the same amount of time. And he, I actually got his position. So he, he had the position a year before me, got promoted, brought back to Kalamazoo, and he was my also my contact to help me get in at Stryker. Okay. And so did you go right away into the international side or did you spend some time in Kalamazoo? Yeah. So, so immediately, interestingly enough, they had two roles. One, one was in uh, Kalamazoo, uh, which, which had just been filled with what was at the time called the instruments division. And the other position was in California um, for a group called endoscopy, striker endoscopy. Sure. It was a more recent acquisition of, of technology. And, you know, it, it, it truly is, it was super fortunate. I mean, the, the endoscopy was largely before that um, endoscopy of the knees and shoulders and, and working towards less invasive surgery for joints. But just as I was joining, it was the absolute biggest boom for lap coli. Mm, so the, sure. You know, the, yeah, the removal of the gallbladder. And, and Stryker was so well positioned because they, at the time, were the only folks that had what was called a three-chip camera. And so it was a booming business. And fortunately for me, um, living in California was difficult just because such a giant um, – culture shift from the Midwest, Kalamazoo, Michigan, and, and, and cost of living. But I traveled the world. I literally was probably only in California three, four days a month. Wow. Wow. So um, it's interesting is that, uh, you know, you talk about spine and you never thought it was going to be what it was going to be. I got to Danik around 19, early 1993. And, um, I remember I was interviewing with a Zimmer distributor in Chicago, um, another orthopedic uh, hip and knee company, and uh, and with Pat Pilcher, um, who's the distributor out of Chicago. And I was, you know, talking to people in the medical device. I, I have friends that were in it. That's what got me interested in it. And everyone told me not to go into spine. 
They're like, oh, the pedicle screw litigation, it's illegal. You're, you know, you, you want to go work for a, a Zimmer, you know, a big company. I mean, everyone. And I just looked at it and I said, if everyone's telling me to go left, I'm going right. Because there's got to be something over there. But did I think it was going to be what it turned out to be? Absolutely not. So you and I kind of had that same uh, perception. And looks interesting. Looks like it could grow. And boy, did it grow. Yeah, you know, it, it, it is. It, it, it's one thing about this industry, specifically spine versus hips and knees and and some of the other areas of, of large orthopedics, is it's always had some sort of cloud over it that would engage that discussion of why you shouldn't be there. Yeah. It, it, and, it's, it, and it's interesting. And, and every time somehow spine breaks through the cloud and and goes into a next phase of blossoming and growth yeah yeah and and that, that's been the fun part of of being in this industry because the naysayers have been there for 30 years yeah no exactly and um i don't know if you stay in touch with ron pickard i i i don't i didn't know him that well but it was a, a, such a great leadership experience for me um being such a young individual in my career to watch that company grow, watch his leadership, watch him take on the class action lawsuits and the FDA um, and win. And, I, you know, I don't know, I could just be, you know, blinded by this, but I think because of guys like Ron Picker that wouldn't, you know, sit at the table with the class action lawyers, you know, going after our industry, that spine wouldn't be where it's at today if it wasn't for someone like him. Yeah, for sure. You know, I, I think Ron Ron was, of course, a very interesting personality, and um, you know, he's he's a, a, a not only a, a very thoughtful, gifted executive, but I think he also, you know, w- was an individual that knew once sophomore Danik became the the market leader, and you know, he did a he did a, a pretty um, aggressive acquisition by acquiring sophomore yeah and one that was difficult uh, I, I mean some would argue um, Danik was already on its way to to US domination and that international presence wasn't as important but it was growing and it, it would eventually you know keep growing and so that the sophomore play was largely a a OUS outside the US play and in US, face it, Danik was taking sophomore market share. It just, it, yeah. it was, it was in, innovating and, and, and surgeons were, were very excited about where Danik was going. But, but despite all that and those growing pains, those years of digesting that acquisition, one thing that I, I, I think you got to give a lot of credit to, to Ronnie for was he knew being market share leader, he had a responsibility for leadership beyond just the company. He had to lead the industry. Yeah. And, and, you know, back in a day when there really wasn't, um, like now I think there's, there's better, um, industry groups that, that help with some of that leadership. Then it was truly him that decided I'm going to take a stand. It's not going to be popular. Um, but I am absolutely going to be an advocate for surgeons because they are helping patients. They are doing good surgery and this is absolutely, um, you know, a, a an effort led by lawyers, not led by true harm to patients, and 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 he did it, and he did it very very successfully for the industry. And I would agree with you 
um, he saved an industry yeah. because there, there were some very, very dark days in the nineties where it could have collapsed. And, and especially after, you know, Acromed had to sell, yeah. they, they sold, they sold, which, which absolutely, you know, gave Depew, um, wings to, to, to fly. And, um, at, at the time though, that, that sell also created a, a settlement and that settlement gave the lawyers even more money to go after the companies that didn't settle. Oh, I didn't and, know that. Yeah. And, and, and so that, that settlement, I think, created the opening for them to be acquired. Um, and then it was, it was truly Ronnie that continued to say, well, we're not settling. I, I think there was some very, very small number he agreed to that he would settle, you know, literally a couple thousand dollars um, few thousand dollars to settle. Other than that, he would fight everything. And he did something pretty, pretty smart then too. He basically took a reserve. So he took a large reserve, and w- which, which gave confidence then to, to investors that, that the, the money's been put aside to fight this. Now we are focused on nothing but the market. And, and I think that's another thing that Ronnie did really well is there's a lot of distractions going on in the market, but he made it very clear to the company that our goal was not to worry about that. Our yeah. goal was to worry about innovation. Yeah. No, it was, uh, that's interesting. I didn't know that, but, but it's, it's fun to talk to these um, younger spine reps and they don't have a historical perspective of how challenging it was in the early nineties and uh, how that industry was looked at and how it's looked at today. So it, it was a remarkable growth period. So um, now, I think, you know, funny, a funny thing, I, I think you would remember this, that, that, it, it was in the nineties where we couldn't say pedicle screw. Yeah. Yep. We, we had to say, we had to say bone screw. And, and the reason we had to say bone screw is they were only, they were only cleared for, for the sacral spine. They weren't cleared for the lumbar pedicles. Yeah. So it's funny you say that because, um, so I, obviously I took the job with, uh, with Danik and went to training, went to Memphis, spent two weeks there. And after the first day, it was the first or second day, you know, I called my wife back at home and she's like, well, how's it going? I go, well, from what I could tell, um, this company makes products we're not supposed to sell. Um, the FDA is all over them, and um, there's class action lawsuits everywhere. And uh, I don't know if I made the right decision coming here because the training was such that it was it was you cannot say this, but doctors are going to put it here. And as I mean, my it was really my first job in devices where I was like, well, how do you do that? And yeah, so I remember very distinctly on how we, how we did that and went about it and had to be very careful. So, yeah, and I can remember, it's funny you say that because I can remember my first training uh, as well. And, you know, um, at, at the time, you know, there was many senior executives that, that now, um, you know, I, I ended up working with, with for eight, 10 years, but then it was like eye opening, right? I'm in my early twenties and, you know, you, you get a, you, you get a, a message or a lecture during training from someone like a Rick Trehorn, who's right. a, who's a legend, a legend in the orthopedic, um, you know, regulatory and it scares you. Right? Yeah. And you're like, holy cow, where am I working? Like, I can't, I can't say that. And, <laughs> and, and, it, and if, and if I do, the company can get shut down and they, you know, they talked about marshals coming with chains and locking your door and it's like, holy cow. And, and, and now you look back on that and I look back on, on what Rick Trehorn had to navigate. Yeah. And he was brilliant. He yeah. was absolutely, um, you know, just a very thoughtful and, 
you know, he understood the business risks, but he also very knew, you know, knew very clearly what the FDA was going after and and followed it to a T. And, and, and you know, what a great learning experience to have someone like that in leadership, uh, you know, when, when I was young. Right? Yeah. Just, you know, you see the best of the orthopedic industry in those early years. Yeah, for sure. And um, uh, I remember making one of my first sales calls and um, – well, it was, a, it was a sales call, and then I went into a case with a doc uh, in Park Ridge, and we're in the case, and he asked, he goes, well, what size uh, pedicle screws do you have? And I, it was like two weeks out of training. I go, we don't have pedicle screws. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, what are you talking about? And I and I kind of told him, he goes, yeah, 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 I get it. Okay, so what sizes do you have? And so, but that's how it was beat in India, where it was like, I, I'm not sure what I should say or who I should say it to. So, so anyways, but uh, but that was the history of spine, and people, a lot of people don't know it. So, um, it's good to talk about it. So now, you know, 30 years into it, you were in the beginning stages of it. How um, how do you see the spine market now, and and what is that? How does how does the I mean the market's changed a lot, but what are the significant pieces of that market that have changed? Especially, I, I remember when you and Pat and uh, Alex went to Nuvasive. Um, I was disappointed when you guys left, and um, but then watched you guys grow, you know, from from the sidelines, and it, it was amazing. So you take all that together. What are the major changes that you have seen that have been the most impactful to the industry? You know, it, it, it's interesting because there's there's similarities, uh, and it's just kind of um, kind of an, a creeping elegance that's happened in our marketplace. I think that, you know, outsiders look in and say, "Well, what's really changed? You guys have had pedicle screws for for thirty years," uh, and, and there's so much that has gone into innovation throughout that time. One thing for sure, the companies that have been successful have been very innovative. They've been the word that we used to use, I, I know you remember it, Danic and sophomore Danic was we have to have sales teams that are consultative in the OR, yeah. right? So that so that a lot of times you're standing there and you're never needed, but there will come a time when something's happened, whatever. Maybe a pedicle's cracked. Maybe maybe um, something has so, something has gone wrong with the patient that wasn't planned, and they're going to look to you. Yeah. And they're going to very quickly ask, what do you got for this? And that is your moment to shine. Yep. And if you're not, if you're not consultative at that moment, you may, you may lose the trust of that surgeon because they're, they're already stressed and you just made them even more stressed by not being able to help them MacGyver out of the situation, so to speak. And so, you know, that, that hasn't changed uh, in our industry, but what, what, what has truly changed is, you know, the real estate in the OR, being consultative in the OR, you know, that always wins the game. The, the best salespeople are the ones that are most valuable in that surgical setting. And so I think what, what kind of is an interesting creeping elegance is in the early days, we couldn't get a, like, for example, when we, you know, came out with Orion, the cervical yeah. plate, right? It was, it was a game it was changer. Such a, it was. It was a game changer. We couldn't get enough sets out there. The, the market share taking strategy with that plate was was phenomenal. But what's changed is there's still opportunities for, for making products better and easier to use. But what's really changed is it's now very technique driven. And and you have to you have to really 
actually own and understand the entire surgical procedure. Like one thing that's talked about a lot now and certainly was talked about in the past, but now systems are actually made for, for better sagittal alignment of the spine. It's not just about fusing the spine. Sure. I think in the, in the days in the 90s when we were there, it was common that you would fuse the spine, you'd solve the problem, but you bought another problem down the road because the spine was flat. Yeah. It didn't have its, it, the proper curvature. And so slowly as things involved, the procedure needed to have the curvature, which meant you needed to have implants that could help create that curvature. And now you're at a point where there, there's a number of different technologies coming in that create a patient that has better alignment um, when you close them up and you know that they're in a better place from an alignment perspective. And so what I love about where we've gone is innovation still owns the day. You know, owning owning your spot in the OR because you're consultative still owns the day. The, the best companies that have done so well are ones that their sales force are experts at the technique. You know, whether it's the days of Kaifon, SI Bones, a great current example, they own the OR for that procedure. Xlif, when we were at Nuvasive, yeah. our sales, no one could beat our sales reps at, at walking a surgeon and helping a surgeon be consultative through a lateral approach. And so that's, you know, that's still the holy grail. And, and it, it, it hasn't changed. Like back in the, in the Danic days, those are, are the reps for Danic were the best trained in the industry. They, they, they knew spine inside and out. Yeah, it's, it was remarkable to see, you know, the skill sets of, the sales reps and, and you know, and distinguish between clinical skills and selling skills. Um, there is a difference, but it was in spine and it probably still is today. You can't have the selling skills if you don't have the clinical knowledge because it's not about I'm I have a better metal that I'm using, right? Um, or better orthobiologics. It's what are you doing for me as a doctor to ensure that my cases are going better, safer, I'm getting better results. So you have to have the two. And, um, and I see that more in that orthopedic market, as well as spine that you need, you need both. Yeah. And, and, and there's also that the other part, if you bring back and you'll remember well, the Danic days, the, the experience, the, the, the interface that the sales team knows that they can share with, with corporate office. Right. And so and back in those days, the, the whole VIP program, yeah. Of, be, be, you know, knowing you can bring a surgeon to Memphis at the time that they would have a good experience in the home office, understanding the products, meeting development people, meeting marketing people that they're at, at that time. Uh, now we have, you know, on site cadaver facilities at our facility. We had that at, at Nuvasive. Many companies have it. But back then there was, you know, the, the Mary, which was a, sure. not not far from home offices where you could do cadaver training. And I, I can remember just a simple message that one time that Ronnie gave. And, and it was because I think that these VIPs were going on and, and sometimes people would be late because they had other meetings. And he, he, you know, he basically just sent out a really simple message that said, listen, um, you know, when we have a, a surgeon in the building, that is our priority. Our priority is for them to have a great experience. He said, I don't care if you need to sprint down the hallways, run across the parking lot to get there on time. And you got to cool your feet at the door before you walk in to see the surgeon, but no one will be late anymore. And uh -huh. it was just such a, it was just such a simple message of when you have that kind of priority and the sales, you know, the sales team is successfully brought a prospective client and, and surgeon to the office, 
we can't be the ones that screw it up. Right. And it was just such a such a simple, clear message. Yeah, for sure. No, it, uh, his his leadership in that was just the best. And um, and as a as a sales rep and a district manager going on to those VIPs and seeing how well they were done and how focused they were done, I don't think I ever had a bad VIP visit uh, that and. and I, all of them led to new opportunities with doctors, all of them. So uh, that just goes to show you how, how important that is. And the, I just remember um, you know, a guy like Chris Ryan, um, his knowledge of spine in general and his ability to consult was head and shoulders above so many people, even myself, that I was amazed in the type of conversations he could have and who he could teach, not only you know, talking to doctors, but other sales reps. And uh, that type of talent that exists in spine, to me, is just remarkable. Yeah, it, it, it is. And, 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 and there's so many examples. And every time, you know, if you put in your head the, the best you've worked with in sales, it always comes down to, to at some point, their, one of their top three skills is their clinical ability. Yeah. And that, that, that understanding, that deeper understanding. And, you know, I mean, Let's face it. There's there's successful sales reps that are out there that that you know don't enjoy the OR experience, but they know it's part of the job. And then there's others that, despite the fact that they're in a cold OR for hours on end, they're they're learning every day. They're they're fascinated by what the surgeon's doing. They're fascinated by how the X-rays look and and what the decisions that were made. And those are the ones that I think really differentiate themselves. Yeah, for sure. So you talk about innovation. Um, I mean, I've been told these numbers, I haven't researched them, but there's over 100 spinal implant companies today, maybe even more. That's a lot of noise going on in a marketplace. And so, and you talk about innovation, but where is the real innovation happening? Because there are some products that, you know, you're trying to find a market for some of these products, but then there's the true innovation. And I'm going to couple this with the article I just read where they asked doctors on spine. It was yesterday I read it. What are some of the key areas that you're not comfortable with, you know, in the spinal implant market? And there was a number of things that were said, but there's one doctor that talked about artificial discs as being bad. And then another doctor talking about artificial discs being good. And the data proves that it's good and it's, and you can use it even after a fusion, you know, on a, on a level above or below. And I thought that was interesting to get those two perspectives in the same article. And so, the, so I'm wondering, how do you innovate with such a noisy market? Yeah, it, it, it's a, it's a great comment because I think so many times you've, you've been there where they put up an x-ray and there's a debate in the room about what should be done. Right. right. And, and OK, so so let's acknowledge that one of the basics is there's going to be some kind of fusion procedure for this patient. But there's so many different ways, unlike hip and knee, where there's a, a straightforward solution from from an arthroplasty perspective for for fusion. It could be a posterior. It could be an anterior. Now, also, it could be a lateral procedure. So first, you're going to define how are we going to go at the spine? And then once you go at the spine, what implants are you going to use? And and probably Three solutions may all work well. Um, it just depends on the surgeon's experience level, what they're really good at. Some are better posterior, some are better anterior. But but one thing consistent in spine is you can get 10 surgeons in the room 
and you'll probably have three or four different proposals on how to treat that patient. And, and so with that, that becomes the noise. The noise is, is we as, as, a, as a company have to offer a number of different solutions. We have to offer choices. And even some, some surgeons will say, if the patient's over 70, I do this. If the patient's under 30, I do whatever. Yeah. There's, there's, there, there's, there's some sort of algorithm they use. And, and so the innovation right now, it's funny because I think innovation is, there, there's an efficiency innovation too. So you have to have, without a doubt, in, instrumentation, people will look at it and say, well, that doesn't look much different than a pedicle screw system I saw 10 years ago. Well, well, actually it is because there's different techniques now, right? As I mentioned, now you have to have systems that can accommodate better alignment techniques. Whereas before, you may have made your pedicle screw system just to lock the spine down. It didn't matter. Um, so, so, so that's an accommodation. The other thing you have to accommodate is, is you can't, you can't be the company that's always bringing in 15 trays. Yeah. Um, not, not only, not only is it not sustainable from, from a, from a capital perspective, the amount of CapEx you have to spend on it, but you're now getting pushback from hospitals to just say, you guys got to figure this out, but we can't have this, this much going on in our, in our sterilization requirements. So, so, so there's, you know, in, innovation now creates new constraints, if you will. We have to be more efficient with how we deploy sets. We have to be more efficient on, on how they're being used. I mean, what wins the day sometimes is just the fact that your system's easier to use yeah. um, and, and is more efficient. And then, yes, there is true innovation. There's still opportunities, I think, in spine for, for motion preservation. I think there's still opportunities in spine for, obviously, robotics or guidance. I, I, I'm still mixed on robotics because it's not really a robot that actually touches the patient. It's a robot that gives you alignment. And then the surgeon's hand follows the alignment of, of the robot, which in my mind, why not just have a great guidance platform? Yeah, it, and that's so, what it sounds like. Yeah. And, and I'll tell you, the, the one thing of, of real innovation right now that I, I think is creeping, has been creeping up in spine and is now a large, large issue is radiation. Hmm. And, 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 and the companies that can provide technology that limits radiation, it's huge. It's, it's not just the radiation, um, anymore of just the, the surgeon, obviously surgeons have always been worried about how much CRM usage they have. And there, there's a number of unfortunate examples of, of surgeons that have passed because of complications that many feel were, were due to radiation in the OR. But there's now even a lot of conversation about patients getting too much radiation with CT scans and multiple CT scans in the OR. And so that's an opportunity for innovation. How do you, how do you marry your implant systems with, with technology that eliminates radiation? That's interesting. Um, I never even thought about that. How many companies are out there doing something like that? So um, there's, there's, there's a few guidance companies that can do their guidance platforms without radiation. So what they do, almost everyone requires a preoperative CT. You need, sure. you need, you know, this goes, you remember back to the stealth days, oh, you yeah. need some, yeah, you need some kind of baseline of the, of the patient's anatomy before surgery. But, but the, the trick is how do you then take that patient into surgery and then use very little radiation to register back to that original scan? And, and, and some of the technology that's coming forward right now, like, for example, we, we partnered with a, with a company called 7D Surgical. They're out of, they're out of um, Canada. And what's, 
really unique about their technology is they use what's common for everyone now, the, the same kind of vision learning system that Tesla uses to help self-navigate their car. The, oh. the same technology when you, you put your iPhone to your face and it unlocks. Um, that technology is now incorporated into a very thoughtful guidance platform. So once you open the patient up, this system will look at the, the, the shape, the, um, the depth of the bones, the tissue, marry that back to, to the scan, and now you have a registration. And it, instead of registering in the days you remember with stealth over you know some number of points, let's yeah. say whatever – three, 12, whatever it was. Now you're talking about taking a quick, almost like a flash photography. It's a quick flash. It it looks at the anatomy and now there's thousands of points that it's, it's using to, to correlate back to a scan. And you're talking about incredible accuracy with zero radiation and, and competitors right now that, that have similar systems have to bring in a interoperative CT and run the patient quickly through an interoperative CT. Well, there's nothing quick when you're moving around tons, literally tons of equipment, and and the radiation exposure for that patient is is high. Yeah, and it, you can imagine if it's an adolescent patient, the last thing you want is is a, a you know a young a young person, whether uh, male or female, getting unnecessary radiation when they're you know for at, hours, at a young age for hours. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, it's funny because on the stealth, I remember at Sophomore Danic, we had an agreement with the company, um, Stereotactic Navigations. Is that what was that the name of the company? I can't remember, but um, oh yeah, the original Stealth. Yeah, yeah. What was the name? Out of, they were out of they were out of um, Colorado. Okay, out of Boulder. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and I sold a few of those, and uh, I was like, now I'm married to it. It was it was spending so much time on those cases, getting uh, especially at Northwestern, getting residents ready for the cases next week, and doing the guidance and running the system in the operating room. Oh, it was it was painful back then. I mean, we're talking twenty some odd years ago. So it's good to see that you know at least obviously there's innovation going on everywhere, and for the safety of the patient, the doc. Um, I because I didn't know that was happening. So glad. Glad to see it. Um, now you've built these companies, right? You've been a an active participant in the explosive growth. It takes a team to do that, though. I mean, we talked about the sales force and what they need. What do you look for when you're building a team, and what does it take today? Is it any different than it was thirty years ago? I'm just curious on your thoughts. Yeah, you know, I, it, it's interesting. I, I think that as you as you grow up, not only in this industry, but grow up seeing different leadership styles and seeing different um, individuals that that bring success, you, you start forming, as you know, you start forming. You know, what what are your priorities for for leadership? And you know, I'll, I'll tell you, my my main mission is that I I need inspirational leaders that that people literally want to, you know, break down walls and, and, and be, you know, guided in one direction together. And, and part of that has to be, they have to be inspirational with how they drive the culture. I think fundamentally the culture is the fabric that, that holds our organization together. The most successful organizations I've been with had incredible cultures. And in, in addition to culture, they have to be also willing to have 
team members that are strong enough to challenge them. And, and, I, and I think that one thing that, that becomes challenging in any, as, as you grow as a company is people not only have the tendency sometimes to build silos, but they also have the tendency not to want to hire folks that are strong and challenge them. Sure. And I, and I think the best organizations we have ever worked for, the leaders that that bring people aboard that challenge them and, and they find great opportunity for them to keep growing are are the ones that that truly build phenomenal and outstanding organizations. And so um, I, I've been very fortunate to, to be part of teams that not only are extremely culturally focused, but they're also very loyal. And the other part, too, that I think is important is we, you got to have an executive team or any kind of, you know, whether it's a small sales team, whether it's a, a you know, executive leadership team where you can close the door, you can have it out on issues, you can you can make things even uncomfortable as you're as you're trying to figure out the best solution. But you figure it out, you open that door, and you all go out marching. Yeah, it, it, it's a you know it, it truly is a, a a cohesive group once you've made the decision, and and that's really where um, I, I think in the organizations I've been part of, whether part of those executive teams or leading those executive teams, that's the biggest strength. The strength is is that we can have it out. We can you can you can call the baby ugly. You can call my idea stupid. But let's figure it out. And once we, we open the door, we translate to the organization as a team. It's not still building silos. It's true translation, and we drive forward. Yeah, no, I think that's right, especially on the challenge piece. Um, I had the opportunity to build a commercial team over at Advanced Bionics. It's now Boston Neuromodulation. The leader of the company, Jeff Greiner, he would he – would create that environment of challenging people and having people get challenged. But you couldn't walk into a room and say, that's broken. And that's it. You had to have, okay, well, what's your solution? Because anybody could tell me it's broke. But, um, and it's okay to tell me it's broke, but you better have a better idea. And so I think that's what you're talking about too, to have those closed door um, conversations. And like you said, have it out. But then once you come to agreement, you go out and execute. Yeah, and it's kind of interesting you said it because, you know, um, C-SPAN was created because it was a spin out of Integra Life Sciences. So Integra Life Sciences is is an incredible company. You know, uh, Stuart Essig originally um, was was the CEO and he was he was a master. He came from the, a, a banking background and was a master at, at acquisitions and put together, I don't know, 50, 60 different companies to create this this multi-billion dollar company. And um, the interesting part to all that was we spun out. And I, and I think that there was true excitement when, when they spun out three different groups that they had purchased over the course of four or five years. And they just decided no longer fit in their portfolio. And so that's how C-Spine was created. We were a spin out that became public. And the interesting part is people, people – you know, we're excited to be part of something smaller again. Yeah. But they're also, unfortunately, just because they were they were all on the West Coast and 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 Integra was on the East Coast, there was a general kind of um, climate that people were afraid to make mistakes. And it wasn't Integra's fault for this. It was just the nature of the business when you're this satellite on the West Coast. The rest of the companies on the East Coast, you just didn't want to screw up. But the problem is when you're a small company now like C-Spine or smaller than than what Integra was, you need people that take risk, if you will, in the sense that 
if you're a director in the company, you're there to make decisions and drive the business. If you're waiting for me to make the decision, we have a problem. Yeah. And, 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 and that's, that was, that was a part of the culture that I wasn't maybe ready for. I, I didn't anticipate was that you, it's hard to instill kind of this ask for, for forgiveness, not permission or, or go ahead and do it and fix your screw up quickly. Right. And learn from it. And, you know, I, I feel like I, we want to be the company that we can fix three mistakes and, and be on the right path before the large company even makes the first decision. Right. And, 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 and that's a hard thing to instill, but it's something that we have now. We, 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 we have that, that culture. The culture is one of go take the bull by the horns, figure it out. And if it's wrong, fix it. Right. That's simple. There, don't, don't, don't get punished for the mistake. You'll get punished if you don't fix it because that's just being lazy. But if, if you make three mistakes and you fixed every one and you learned from it, that's a good day. Yeah. No, 100%. But you bring it up though, right? So there's big company versus small startup mentality. You have that startup mentality as I do. And when you look at things and go, I say it all the time, don't ask for permission. Just go try things. And if they work continue to do it and share with me so I could spread the word. If it doesn't work, stop, tell me so I could tell others not to do it. But it's like Zuckerberg says, he says, go fast and break things. And, you know, he doesn't, you know, it doesn't mean burn the house down, but he, what he's saying is just go try, go do, and, and then come back because that's then when the culture is created in which people start coming closer together, in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and they're a good example. I mean, you know, people, people always ask that question, you know, kind of at what point do you become a big company and you worry about, you know, that you become the one that, that, that has these, these slow um, decision-making skills. And, and I think those are great examples. I think there's large companies, especially in, in our, in our, um, you know, dot-com world that, are quite large, but still have a mentality that that creates a culture that they feel small, they feel nimble, they feel responsive, and 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 so I, I do think it, it is a mentality. It's not it's not how it's not what your revenue is. It's where your mindset you know goes. Yeah, and startup folks that have been in the startup industry for a long time, I think uh, just now naturally have that. It's I see challenges when you're coming from these big companies for 15, 20 years, and then you come into that. You bring that. I'm worried to do. I'm going to do anything because I'm going to get in trouble. And um, not everyone, but it does exist. And and people can adapt to it as well. It's uh, I've seen it actually firsthand, and where it's like, hey, it's okay to speak your mind. It's it's okay to try things. Don't worry about it. And and actually, by you not speaking your mind, you're providing no value. So exactly. That's a great, yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's a great way to put it. Yeah. yeah, You've lost your, you've lost your value if you have no input. Yeah, exactly. So, all right. Um, I know your time is valuable and, um, a couple things, what should we be looking for in spine over the next five years that you think is the coolest thing happening? You know, it's kind of a little bit of what we talked about before. I, I, I think, as you mentioned, there are a lot of companies in and around Spine, and 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 that's what happens when you have a, a ten plus billion dollar market. You're, you're going to get many folks that that have their niche for an opportunity, and and I think that's all good. I think that all creates opportunities for us if we want to capture technology, combine with technology. But if you look at you know a decade from now, if I look a decade behind 
what we were doing, you know, 10 years ago and what we're doing now, the vision I think really for the future will be, um, a new class of surgeons, like the, the surgeons that are, that are graduating now, getting done with their fellowship are being trained in new technology. So, so the years that we were at Danik, it was a very manual, uh, process of you had to figure out the anatomy in a 3d space. Maybe you had x-ray to help you and you had to put pedicle screws in. Yeah. We're, we're, we're now moving to a time where people are getting trained and, and there's some sort of guidance technology. There's robotics involved with that guidance sometimes, sometimes without. But, but these folks are, are thinking about treating the spine in a different way. They're, they're, they're not being forced to only know the anatomy by feel. They have other tools at their disposal. And a lot of times it's for less invasive surgery. So they're doing it without a lot of, of, of tissue disruption. And, and that percent of the market keeps growing, the, the number of surgeons that are doing less invasive surgery. So when I look out 10 years, I still see fusion being, in, you know, obviously the, the most common thing done for spine, but I, I see less radiation in the OR. I see, um, I see more preoperative planning and postoperative follow-up in, in understanding that I made this decision in my preoperative plan and here was the outcome and, and, and they start adjusting what they do because they're, they're better tied to their outcome. I think, I think most, most people don't, don't realize that preoperative planning is, is not a standard in, in spine surgery. There's a lot of times where you know that the, the surgeon sees the patient, thinks about it maybe the week before, thinks about it the day before, comes in the OR, looks at the x-rays one last time and says, okay, when I open them up, I'm going to make a decision on what I do here. Right. And, and, and now we're getting to technology where they can actually do really good preoperative planning, put implants in preoperatively, take a look at how the spine gets adjusted. And so I think all of these things, especially with the newly trained um, you know, fellows that are coming out, we're going to see a pretty significant shift to technology being introduced into the OR that, that eliminates or limits radiation and also brings a better surgical plan to the experience. And, and so what does that mean for spine companies? I think it means that we're going to continue to have to be challenged with how we participate in the entire procedure. And I think also we're going to, we're going to be able able to take advantage of that hopefully in 10 years. And I hope in 10 years, I'm telling you that the preoperative plan that surgeons are doing enables me to deliver less implants because I know they don't need every size. I know they need probably this size, a size above and a size below, and I can be more efficient in my delivery. Yeah. And, 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 and that will bring down the cost for us, which we know there's going to be pricing pressure for the next 10 years on implant use in, by hospitals. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because you, you said it, the best surgeons were, or may, maybe still are today, are those that could think in 3D and see in 3D, right? And because they didn't have the technology. So when, when I hear you say that, you're actually taking the average surgeon and you're making them a great surgeon by implement, by having these technologies, which means better outcomes, lower cost. Yeah, I do. I, I I think that that's absolutely where where we go in, in the next ten years, and 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 there'll be an accountability, right? It's it's just 
you, you see how how health systems are are advancing, and they they look to outcomes too to justify how they get better reimbursement, how they get you know better efficiency, and so. Uh, spine is in that place. Yeah, you know, I, I think hip, hip and knee is has has demonstrated how how consistent their procedure is. It's up to spine now to also demonstrate how consistent we can be. Yeah. All right. Last last uh, last question. It may may be a multiple question, but COVID uh, obviously on the top of everybody's mind. Has it had an impact on on you guys? And and what is that impact? And do you see this? The, the aftermath of COVID changing the way in which you operate or interact with providers? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question because, you know, obviously we've all worked through the, the COVID experience and it was a scary process as, as March and April came and certainly May. And then we finally start seeing some recovery in May. And obviously we were up, you know, a, a 10% in the U S um, for, for our third quarter. And right now the fourth quarter, continues to, to, to look um, very promising from a, from a surgical load perspective. But I say that with caution because we all know that the, the COVID numbers are, are rising. Um, you know, the challenge, the great news is, is we have found a way to navigate this and still place surgeons and patients at our highest priority. We've been very fortunate being a, a company 400 strong that we're, we're back at our manufacturing facility in full force in Irvine. We, we, we are very cautious in Carlsbad, despite the fact that we could have everyone back. We want to honor, you know, the wishes of, of the state and also honor the wishes of, of the challenges people have with taking care of their children as well during this time. But we found a way to win, right? We found a way to grow. But that said, yes, there are, there are changes that, that we can see coming forward. And the good news is some of those changes are you can be successful and still support a surgery or support a surgeon or have conversations with a surgeon now efficiently through many different video conferencing. But at the end of the day, there's no doubt that you still have to have face-to-face experiences. Like we can't drive our development um, programs without the cadaver labs with surgeons. We can't teach surgeons on some of our products without the cadaver labs and, and the training we do in our office. So Fortunately, we're still quite busy in the office when it comes to bringing in surgeons for development visits, bringing in surgeons to better understand our, our procedures and all of our, our um, uh, spinal implants. But yeah, it's, it's concerning because we're very much, as you know, a face-to-face yeah. business in many regards with surgeons, and we have to navigate this. And, and, I, and I think hospitals are also struggling through the fact that um, you know, salespeople are required in the OR for, for spine cases. And despite the fact they want to limit, you know, any activity in the hospital, they right now are still allowing, you know, uh, salespeople to be present as long as the surgeon requires it. Right. So, but I, I, I do worry as, as, as numbers spike and as things happen, you know, there will be restrictions and those restrictions will come at a cost. They'll come at a cost of, of us being able to be a better partner to, to, to our surgeon, you know, um, you know, uh, partners as well. So, yeah. um, it, it'll be interesting how it unfolds. I think this winter and as we get into late fourth quarter and first quarter will be another interesting challenge for all of us to, to navigate COVID. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. It's one thing that I've learned having all these different type of conversations with different 
people in different positions that nobody knows what it's going to really look like, right? Everybody is still um, guessing, right? And hoping for the best, but making plans. And it's not uh, uniform across the country. I I spoke to Pat Miles uh, a couple months ago, and he made a statement that's the tale of the 50 states. And and I, I think that's true as well. As, as different areas go through different situations. So more to come on that. Yeah. And I think the good news is, you know, the, the really good news is if you will, that, that March, April, May was a training ground. It was a training ground for hospitals to figure it out. And, 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 and so that's the good news. The good news is if, if they did figure it out, then we probably would see more shutdowns right now, but but they're the, the understanding a better balance. Obviously, treatment protocols for COVID have only gotten better over time, so they're finding their balance. But but I think you know as well that there's a lot of patients out there for spine procedures that it's not easy to just push them out for a few yeah. months. They they have they have significant pain. They can start getting deficit if if they don't get surgery. Yeah. So. You know, there, there, there is a balance that has to be reached. And the good news is I, I think hospitals largely have, have found some of that balance because they learned from the, the previous experience. Yeah, no, I agree. So, yeah, well, we're, we're a very nimble organization. I mean, uh, community and healthcare that um, you got to figure it out. Right, you got to get these patients better. You, you you have to do it. You can't sit back. And there's a lot of bright minds, you know, leading this. So, and it's good to see also on the provider side. I did a podcast with um, Bruce Radcliffe out of the Aurora Advocate Healthcare System. He's VP of Strategic Supply, and he said, you know, on the podcast, he goes, "We moved what I would have thought would have taken us years to come to a decision. We moved in days and weeks." And so everybody is adopting to this mode of we've got to figure it out. We don't have time to play games, which is nice to see because innovation happens through that. Yeah, for sure. And I think, too, that, you know, what we'll see is as we exit, um, you know, COVID is it'll be very clear the companies that continue to invest, they continue to innovate even throughout this and, and, and found ways to to not shut down programs or furlough. And, 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 and I get it. Some, some companies have to do that. But you take such a giant step back when when the economy and and COVID's gone and the economy again restarts in medical fully that are are you prepared for that that you know next wave and and that's where I feel good I feel good that we're continuing to invest in the right things and we're continuing to keep innovation at the forefront and I think that will prepare us for for when COVID's no longer or when COVID's in our rearview mirror. And we're looking at nothing but opportunity. Well, that's a great, that's a great way to end it, Keith. So um, I want to thank you for taking the time to be on the Medical Sales Nation, sharing your story, sharing your thoughts and, uh, and opinions and giving some advice out there for, for the audience. Because I have a lot of young listeners out there who are just getting into med device or want to. So I really appreciate it. Yeah, you bet. It was, it was absolutely great catching up with you. Thanks again. Uh, Medical Sales Nation, until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and good luck selling.